people from a long time ago? Could it be someone from another culture? Could it be a family member? But reading through the scriptures, I should not be surprised by the behavior by the behavior of some of our fellow citizens. If I may inject here, not so much biblical humor, but maybe some irony here, I feel like we kind of need some Old Testament judges to come back. I think we're kind of at that point where, you know, we've been blessed so much that we've forgotten who God was. We've forgotten that He was responsible for all those things that we've had. And I feel like maybe we could use that again. Maybe we could be called back to repentance. And that's my prayer. I do hope that that's what God has in store for us, that, that there's a miracle in the working and that repentance is at, is at hand. But I don't know that. What I do know is that if history teaches us anything, the same old lies and sin that begin are going to keep on. History is going to continue to repeat itself because of this, and it all began way back at Adam. And when you boil it down to the bare minimum, we're left with two religions. And this is going to be an oversimplification for you, but you have God's religion and man's religion. That's what it boils down to. There is one true God, and all other religions either seek to replace him or blame him. And think about just the people that we interact with throughout our communities, our families, our nation, our country, and whatever form that we interact with them. You can almost always say, somebody is out to say that someone else is responsible for where I'm at. I place the blame elsewhere. Now, the Bible is pretty clear that man is responsible for his own actions, and all those actions have consequences. Now, you don't have to turn here, but you can jot some notes down if you like and uh, listen. But I want to set the stage for you before we actually get into our key passage. So I'm not going to have you open yet. But in part, I just want to show you God's unchanging nature. And I think that for some of you, this will be pretty clear, and it's not new news. But 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's a whole lot of... Uh, accountability, if you're listening there, that each one, for his deeds, for what he has done, no excuses. James 4.17, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do it, and he does not do it, to him it is sin. Sounds like personal accountability again. Galatians 6.7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that he also reaps. The resounding theme here, and Jesus says in Revelation 22.12, Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I'm pretty sure that most of you, that reality of personal accountability is not new news. In fact, I think that you'll find a lot of people like or believe in the idea of personal accountability, even when they don't ascribe it to God's word. And I would say that we are used to that because these ideals are the byproduct or the fruit of our nation being founded on biblical teachings. However, in today's world, we are quickly seeing a change from this idea. There is this idea that personal accountability is, is not what it's about. Then there is this loud cry from social justice warriors and victimhood culture. And since we live here, how should we deal with that? What should a Christian do about such things? What is the stance that the believer takes amidst your friends and your co-workers that is pleasing to God? I struggle with this question a bit lately because I've interacted with a lot of people and I've tried to have a lot of open dialogue at work and with friends and people that I don't think are believers. And I would say that you guys know about pretty much like I know that at any given time, on any given moment, on any given day, there are thousands of voices crying out to you for your attention because they either want your help, your support, your money, your time, and so on and so forth. 
And furthermore, if you don't do any of those things, most of the time your inaction is regarded as part of being part of the problem. But is that true? Are you part of the problem? So I had to step back for a minute and had to think. And to do that, I have to get in a quiet place. So I don't know how things go for you, but when I sit back and actually get a topic on my mind, a lot of times my thoughts, they hit quicker than I can process them. And so I'll take you down that, that journey for just a second. And this is, this is just what I do, and, and, and you'll see where this is leading to about how God works in our lives. But I look around, and I'm like, I see hate, and I, and I see violence, and I know it's wrong. But I know that the devil is a liar, but I know that people are easily deceived and that there's nothing new under the sun, but this is just history repeating itself. But, but man, most of that is wrong. And, and man, look at my Christian brother over here. All of a sudden, he's jumping in hook, line, and sinker. Man, he's been blinded by labels, but light shouldn't have fellowship with darkness. What are the random quarrels for? They, God says they're useless. The wages of sin is death. People need to hear the gospel, but they have teachers who itch their ears with what they want to hear instead. We should be speaking the truth in love. How do I fix it? Can I fix it? Should I say something? What should I do? So I sat down and I began studying. And I'm no stranger to God's word, as I know most of you are not either. But it's oftentimes that when we dig, that sometimes we realize that we've been crowded out by a lot of noise. And the Bible has a lot to say about man's actions. And so with that in mind and with that prayer, God reminded me of this simple truth. The sinner dies. And you're like, well, that's common sense, preacher. We've, we've been in church for a while. And I think sometimes we, we quickly forget amidst all this noise and, and we don't sit quietly with the Word of God that even though He has made it clearly evident that when it all boils down, the sinner dies. The rest of the noise around us is just a distraction. Personal accountability does not allow for the blame game to be pointed anywhere but inward. But that is not what we're going to see around us. That is not what society is telling us. And all these competing voices, coupled with a whole lot of information overload, had made me forget a simple truth there. There's a lot that I can do in a society, but what is it that I must do? What is it that us believers must do? And for some of you, I would assume, as you hear these questions posed, you've already begun to think. Things have already popped in your head. What is it that I'm supposed to do? How is it that I take that information and move forward? And I would encourage you, that's a good sign. That's the word of God that's been hidden in your heart that says, if you follow, speak the gospel. So just as throughout human history, we cannot leave that crucial part out of what our society is going through. We have to stop and say, amidst all that noise, that the wages of sin is death and the sinner dies. God has not made that a secret message that only we have that we can't share with other people. It is foundational to the personal accountability that each of us may face no matter what else or who else we think that we can blame. And I get it. You can talk to everybody. We could talk amongst ourselves. We could all be victims at some point. Every one of us, I'm sure, has been handed some sort of injustice in our lives. And if you look throughout history, probably no, so, no more so than the Christian. And sometimes our Americanism doesn't help us realize that. We're too comfortable. But Jesus has already told us they hated him, so we better expect the hate to come our way. Are we being hated? There's a lot that goes into answering that question. There's a lot that says that there's a lot to say about your testimony when you answer that question. So answer that question truthfully. Are you being hated? 
See, we're to speak up and warn them anyway. And in the grand scheme of things, as I alluded to, Americanism has nothing to do with the gospel. Where was America when the gospel was given? Where was our society when the gospel was given? Kind of hits you a little bit. It's like, ouch. Ugh. My Americanism has nothing to do with my gospel presentation, but what should I be doing? So I just want to take that out of the equation for a minute. Let's, let's imagine that this is an American society. Let's just imagine this is people. And then by and large, the scripture tells us there's two types of people. There are the righteous and the unrighteous. And we can first know that by our deeds and second by our faith. As I'm sure you know, but I'll make sure that I say this out loud before we go through this passage. There is no amount of righteous, no amount of righteous deeds that will ever override the gospel. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute. But today I want to highlight for you personal accountability because I feel like people think this is something new. But our society is not the only one who's ever had to answer that question. We would not be the last ones that have to answer that question. So I'm going to ask you to turn today to Ezekiel 18. And while you do that, I'm going to give you a little background. That's going to be our main passage today. So I'm not going to ask you to chase all over the place. But I want to highlight personal accountability. Now, Ezekiel, to get you up to speed, a, a really quick, brief summary. He's been taken captive, and he's living a somewhat comfortable life so to speak, as being a captive. Because he wasn't necessarily a slave, but he wasn't necessarily free to leave. You might think of him more as like a, a colonist in a new land. Not by choice, though. So in this captivity, God told Ezekiel that he had to speak up and warn Israel, who had at this point been rebellious, that they would be responsible for their actions. And as such, throughout the, the book of Ezekiel, several times God portrays Ezekiel as a watchman. The watchman sat along the wall and would warn of coming judgment. And as you think of a military, you know, would warn of the coming invasion that might happen. But Ezekiel's job as a watchman was to warn Israel of coming judgment. And throughout God's discourse with Ezekiel, one thing becomes very apparent, and God warns Ezekiel of this. People are not going to like what you have to say, but you've got to say it anyway. And it actually uses words and terminology that, that says, basically, no matter their dismay, their dirty looks, their refusal to listen, Ezekiel, you have to deliver my message. And today I want you to hear that God in his all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, unchanging character, character, that personal accountability is not new. And in addition to that attribute, he calls his watchmen, and in this case, as we move into our society, there are many of us that can be considered watchmen, to speak up. And he told Ezekiel to not do so would actually put the blood of the people on him. And he does a call for individual accountability, but he says, if I've told you to speak and you don't, I will hold their blood on you as well. Let's look at Ezekiel 18, and I'm going to read starting in verse 9 through verse 20, but we're going to key in today with our key verse being from Ezekiel 18:20. If he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just. He shall surely live, says the Lord God. If he begets a son who is a robber or a shedder of blood, who does any one of these things and does, not, and does none of those duties, but has eaten on the mountain or defiled his neighbor's wife, if he has oppressed the poor and needy, robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, lifted his eyes to idols, or committed abomination, if he has exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? Rhetorically, he would say no, but he, he even makes that clear in the next verse, or the next sentence there. He shall not live. 
If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. Sounds like some personal accountability. If, however, he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise, who has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, he has not oppressed anyone, nor withheld a pledge, nor robbed by violence, but has given him given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and not received usury or increase, but has executed my judgments and walked in my statutes, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right, and kept all my statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. Here, listen to this. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear that guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. I almost don't have to explain any of that. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. Is there room for blame? God has set that pretty clear. But we're going to get to this, but Israel had a, uh, this question that was resounding, and God had to clear this up. So the person who sins will die. And furthermore, as, as I read through a lot of the book of Ezekiel, God has to tell Israel that their ways aren't fair. So, so here you see they're clearly thinking one way, and God says, your ways are not fair, mine are. I take no pleasure in punishing you. You have a watchman, but I take no, no uh, pleasure in punishing the unrighteous. In fact, I provide the opportunity for repentance, and I will judge everyone according to his ways. And God gives the Ezekiel the same discourse in chapter 33 as well. And you may say, wow, that's a lot about personal accountability. You know what? That's, that's not a big deal. I think, I think we understand that. And I would say that it is a big deal, and that we often don't think about this, but, but what was Adam's sin? I mean, you think about going back to Adam, and I think we all have an idea of what we think Adam's sin was, but who did he blame? He blamed God. I mean, in his own words, talking to God, he says, the woman that you gave me to be with, when God asked him what happened, she gave me of the tree and I ate it. I mean... (laughs) I try to think of this, some of this stuff as like kids and dads talking to each other, and that's just because I'm a father. But can you imagine, hey, God, uh, I was single, I went to sleep, I woke up, bam, pff, your fault. You know, like that's, that's not the best argument that you can have. And all humor aside, even though Adam wasn't quick to say it was me, he was quick to blame it on someone else and say, God, that's your fault. I mean, think about your own kids right now. If your kid come up to you and said... Dad, I know you said not to touch that. I know you said not to eat that, but that little sister, she brought it to me, and you, know, you and Mom, that's your fault. You know, you, that, that's why I did it. And we would kind of laugh that off and be like, hmm, that is not the way this works. But yet even all the way back at Adam, it was a blame game. God, it's your fault. You're the one that gave me that woman. Then we look around today and we think, this is new news. See, Adam knew he was wrong. He had an excuse to place the blame elsewhere. And the funny thing and the irony about that is, 
this whole original sin was he actually knew not to eat of the tree because he even tells God. And then he knew that the woman gave it to him, which he knew was wrong. But yet his discourse was, I should blame God. And from that, we get what we call original sin. The person who sins now dies, and that positional status of death gets passed down from Adam. So we call that sin nature. Every person is born with it. And not to say that Israel didn't have some sort of understanding of that. That's not to say we haven't moved through history and Christians haven't carried that idea forward and that we don't know that sin nature exists. But people are always figuring out how can they point the blame elsewhere. So by the time we get to Ezekiel and Israel is back at this blame game, God says, you know, let me clear this up. Because you are personally responsible. It's not your father's. You are responsible for the sin that leads to death. And the nation was being punished. They're in exile. But they were being punished continually because of individual sin. But they thought it was okay. Let us blame our forefathers. It is their fault that we are where we are at. There's nothing that we can do about it. It's not our sin right now that's keeping us here. So Ezekiel is given this discourse from God. And in this passage, he outlines horrible deeds of a father. I mean, pictures, picture God the father and then Israel is, is the child. He sets forth these horrible deeds of a father and says that the son who sees these deeds and does not act like his father and doesn't do them, he instead will live. It is the opposite. This in and of itself, as we boil it down to its roots, is the root of the gospel message. That all men are sinners, all men die, and all are held accountable for their own actions, not those of anybody else. God has not ordained that you are going to be responsible for someone else's deeds except your own. It's not your parents, it's not your neighbor, your favorite politician, your ancestors. You are not responsible for any of them. You are responsible for you. Throughout history, people have always tried to shift this blame of the current situation or their current actions and somehow hoping that that lack of accountability lets them squeeze by. And in God's reckoning, judgment comes by how you respond to Christ, either through the resurrection of life or condemnation. See, it's how they respond to Christ that matters. And Jesus, has, he says this in John five twenty two through 30, and, I, and I'm not going to ask you to go there, and I'm only going to key in on this. One part of the verse, and after the discussion is happening, and Christ equates belief in him with everlasting life, he goes on to say in verse 29 what the results of that is. Where, where does the individual go with those results? What are those who have done good? The resurrection of life. And to those who have done evil, the resurrection of condemnation. There it is again personal accountability based on what the individual did with their faith this idea is not new Jesus didn't institute it as we just seen in Ezekiel Isaiah talked about a lot of the same stuff with personal accountability God was always trying to hold everyone accountable for their actions whether righteous or unrighteous and he says say to the righteous that it will go well with them and they will eat the fruit of their actions woe to the wicked it will go badly with him for what he deserves will be done to him God's unchanging. So as I read these verses and I think about personal accountability, I begin to realize if God visits iniquity on the sinners, should I look around in our society and be shocked at what I see? And rhetorically, we could all say the answer is no. Because don't we expect God to be faithful to what he says? We expect that what we've read in in his word is going to hold true. So why would we expect to look around and see nothing different with unbelievers? Is America somehow different? It's not. It might be a little bit louder now than it's ever been as far as the noise is competing for your your attention. 
So a society that hates God inevitably is going to suffer at his wrath. So I survey the Bible, and I listen to lots of guys that I think are wiser than me, and, and I try to assimilate what I hear from the Bible. And so, and I'm sure that most of you can follow this, but I'm reminded that God has placed several restraints or institutions in our lives that, that help us generally thwart sin. And only so much and so is it led by the Holy Spirit. And one of that is, one of those things is the heart. God tells us that he's written the law upon the heart. But what has society done with that? What, what matters? It matters how I feel today. It might matter how I feel tomorrow. It doesn't matter that those two feelings are contradictory. Well, that doesn't seem like something that God would put out there. But that's how the society has viewed or tried to make everybody view the condition of the heart. So he set his law upon a heart. The society doesn't, they do nothing with this. They actually sear the conscience. He's also given us the family structure and parental discipline. That's a restraint that we have to help us thwart sin. But the devil's convinced a lot of Americans that the family has no need to look godly. And as I was doing some research this week, because some people asked me some questions, I come across an organization, but actually several organizations, and I, this kind of shocked me, and I think you will too, but the family now has no need to look godly, so much so that families led by husbands and fathers are seen as patriarchal hierarchy in the culmination of white supremacy. What? How quickly I'm reminded that the devil is just roaming around seeking it is that whom he can devour. The father of lies telling people that the family has no business in that structure and that's the culmination of white supremacy. But then again, the God has also given us a local church and accountability of like-minded believers. And I say that definitely some churches do better than others, but man, if you take a... I've been around the country... Uh, quite a bit with the military, and I've been to lots of churches around the world, chapel services, and I, I man, if, if we, when I say God's religion and man's religion, it is not that far of a stretch to go into any church in America and see that man's religion overrides God's doctrine all the time. And then, can we expect the majority of those modern day churches to ask anybody to be godly when they can't figure out how to be godly themselves? See, the church is not supposed to sidestep the Word of God. They're not supposed to attempt to be relevant and look like the culture. The church is not meant to look like the world. That's not the task that's been set at hand. If the, if the sinner dies, there must be more than looking like the world. So then there's also the government. The government has the authority that God has given it. That's another restraint. But if you look around today and you think about policing and governing law, do we expect anything godly out of that? Not from society at large. So when these institutions, by and large, are weak, and in some cases they are non-existent, it should come as no surprise that the world that we are placed in today is influenced by the devil, it's absent godly obedience, and we should expect no different than what we see. Does that mean we shouldn't do something? I mean, in turn, largely, you can explain all those by the consequences of a personal accountability. And God sets that forth in Scripture that we're supposed to seek these things out. But if you listen to the chatter out there, everyone else blames someone else. 
And beloved, make no mistake, that, you know, when the cow and the chickens or whatever come home to roost, we are not absent any blame. And by we, I mean those of us that were once consumed by wicked deeds, but have been changed by God's mercy through salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul reminds us of this in Titus 3. So not only does the believer have a past state that we should be encouraged that we're no longer in, but we should also be looking at our current conduct. So I say, listen to these words. These words I needed to hear and be reminded of because sometimes the noise is just too loud out there. And I know that we all come from different backgrounds and different experiences, but that does not allow us to skirt the personal responsibility of our actions. Now, we should have moved. If we sing this morning, I believe, and, and I believe in God the Father, I believe in God the Son, I believe in God and the Holy Spirit, and we seek to follow those things, then there should be some changes that have been wrought in our lives. There should be a set of character traits that we move from to another set of character traits that we move to. And that is simply a result of salvation in Christ. So are you see, do you see yourself doing this? So think about that and whether or not this aligns with your life. In Titus 3, 1 through 10, it says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Surely that doesn't describe us today. Surely that does not describe you today. Because if it does, then we're personally accountable for those. It goes on to say in verse 4, But when the kindness of our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of our deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. It was by the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who believe God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. What are they? Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious or divisive man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. And you think, oh my goodness, well that's just too easy. All unbelievers are like that. Um, That's not who he's talking to. So, So if every soul who sins shall die, and you see all those sins on that list... And you say, well, that's not me. I'm pretty sure it characterizes most everybody at some point, and that's the, just the average individual. But Christ enacted mercy upon us, so we're to be set about doing some things. The resulting fruit of salvation should look like what he just said. Good deeds, profitable for men, put away from useful strifes and disputes. Rejecting those who seek out to cause trouble and commit perversions of all types. Now, if he's talking to believers and that's a tall order, how much more intense do you think it's going to get if you start interacting in a fallen world surrounded by sin? So if, if you think about doing that within the church and then what you, your responsibility is to the world, do you think you're caught up in obedience when you hear this or are you convicted by the conscience? Now, I'm thankful personally that we're just passing through uh, because you know I don't, I don't mean to be a downer on this, but when you look around and we see everything that's going on, sometimes you just want to put your head in your lap and just try to ignore it all. So we're just passing through this world, and it pains me to think that 
We have all this stuff going on, and there will be those who remain blinded to sin at the point that they won't ever or could never hear the message that you or I may bring as the watchman about Christ. And you say, but I thought if someone goes and speaks, they'll hear, right? Well, maybe. That depends on the work of the deceiver. That depends on the state of the man. You're like, surely that's not true. Well, let's see what God's Word says about that. You carry that message. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they must be spiritually appraised. 1 Corinthians 1.18 and 19, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. So not only will they not listen, they will take this cleverness and this wisdom they think they have and think it's enough that they don't have to listen to anything that you have to say. Does that not sound true as you interact with people? So what do you think? What is it that we should do? What should I do? What should you do? Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ anyway. The crucified cross, we know, will be a stumbling block to Jews and a hindrance and foolishness to the Gentiles. But did God give us that information and say, so just blame everyone else and don't worry about it? That's not, that's not what we're told. And see, Satan is also at work blinding people every chance that he gets. And that is not new news. We should expect it. Paul warned of this in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. He says, And if our gospel it is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Why? In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan is at work making sure that people stay blinded. Well, how do we combat that? Well, what do we do with that? Satan and his ministers portray themselves as ministers of light and righteousness. So think about all the things that people say and all the excuses that people come up with. And think about Satan and his ministers portray themselves as light and righteousness. Do you see the dilemma there when you have conversations with people? It's quite the dilemma. And you're like, how in the world does that person as a believer, if they are a believer, think that Satan is actively at work? That shouldn't surprise you because that's exactly how we can be accused of and persecuted for not jumping on the bandwagon and proclaiming, and listen to this list, and proclaiming everyday modern intersectionality, victimhood, cisgender, nonconforming, transforming, pro-choice, untraditional marriage, homosexual act as some sort of progress in society. You can't get on board with any of that? Jesus causes people to love everybody. You say, that's a crazy list. And I would echo, guess what? There's nothing new under the sun. That sounds like a whole bunch of labels of new things that are as old as time itself. That's not new. And guess what? Just as our passage said, the soul who sins dies. That was a whole lot of noise that we listen to in the world. But the soul who sins dies. Based on personal accountability and how they respond in faith to the work of Christ. And that response, when it's unrighteous, what do you think happens? I know we haven't been in Romans for a while, but Romans 1, 18 through 32, I'm going to read this passage and, and just listen and sound like, are you reading about America or are you reading about Paul talking to Rome? 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress truth and unrighteousness. Remember, we just read about that. Because that which is known about God is evident with them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they came futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise... Sounds familiar, we just read that. They became fools and exchanged the glory of an uncorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth that's been given. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged natural functions for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burdened their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, to be filled with all unrighteousness, what does that look like? It gives a list. Wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they knew the ordinance of God, those that practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, they approve of those who practice them sound like a couple of leaders that I know that claim that they serve God. If you read verses like that and you view society through that lens, how can you not be heartbroken? And I know there's an ebb and flow in all of our lives. Like, what do we do with some of this information? You know, I can't spend every waking moment uh, going out and talking to people about the gospel. I still got to live. And, and I get that. But when you read these type of verses and you look at what was going on then, what is going now, and you see that nothing's changed, and regardless of all that, Christ said, do my work anyway. The soul who sins dies. You are my watchman. Go forth and tell them of the coming judgment. If that doesn't upset you looking at that list, I don't know what will. Because I look around at all that unrighteousness at work in our society, and I think, why should I, or why would I expect to see anything different and then I think, man, i got friends and family who bear that burden and they don't even know it. They're blinded by the devil. They're blinded by the natural state of man. They can't know it. They bear that burden. And, and I think, man, my heart aches. So I'm going to be clear today. Obviously, personal accountability is a big deal. The soul who sins and, will, and we all sin. So let's just make that clear up front. The soul who sins dies. We all sin. We all die. It, that sin results in death. Thus, I say that salvation is even a, a bigger deal. Because every one of us has been or is a sinner in need of a Savior. And every single one of us, got, by God's mercy, has the opportunity to escape hell or be the watchman to tell those around us the same. God has told us that our good deeds are worthless. 
and that they will never help us find a way into heaven. There is only one religion that gives us this truth. And that is God's religion, not man's. And I would imagine that for some, they've been blinded by the devil up to the day. They've been blinded by man's religion. They've sought to blame someone else for their sins. I just ask you to think about all the things that you hear from the Word of God and, and all the things that weigh heavy on the conscience. Consider that. There's a reason for that. God's law is written on the heart. And if it bears heavy on the conscience, that's on purpose. If it is bearing witness to you today, that is probably a good sign that God's got some business with you. Whether or not you're a believer and you just needed to be reminded of that, or you're unbelieving and you just don't know what to do, you're searching. God's knocking at that door. That law that's written on your heart, it testifies to that fallen nature that every single one of us was born with. And none of us can make that right apart from the righteousness of Christ. See, those sins and those wrongdoings and those things that we see in everybody else and that we see in our lives, they might make you feel bad. But there's only one atonement for them. And that is the shed blood of Christ on the cross through the power of the resurrection as Him as Lord and Savior. There is no good deed or viable substitute for Christ's atoning work on your behalf. Guess what? You, you don't earn it. We're not worthy of it. And yet God says in His grace and mercy it's free. So, the watchmen, are you set about warning the people? It's free. See, all you have to do if you don't believe in God at this point is, is according to Romans 10, 9 and 10, is confess with your mouth the Lord, the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you'll be saved. Because it is with the heart that one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth that confession is made unto salvation. And furthermore, it goes on to say, if you do so, you won't be put to shame. And that every name, everyone that calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. Now see, here's the thing. I can't do that for you. We were talking about personal accountability. I can't do that for you. Your parents can't do that for you. Your grandparents can't do that for you. Your friends can't do that for you. That is a personal responsibility to answer the call of the Holy Spirit in your life. And if it weighs heavy on the conscience, I beg that you do it now. I don't know where everyone stands at in their life. I think I know where a lot of people are based on the, the, their works of righteousness. But we can we are deceived all the time. See, there's only one answer to society's problems. And it is the exact same answer for our unrighteousness. Only one name under heaven by which men may be saved. And who is that? Jesus Christ. Do you answer that call today or do you share that with others? Will you blame someone else for the position that we're in or that you're in or that your family's in? Will you remain allow them to remain blinded? Because then it's all said and done. Even all the way back in Ezekiel, God made sure that you could not blame your forefathers. Move forward and said, when I come... I'm coming with my reward to do to each according to his deeds. You're responsible for the call in your life. Do not remain blinded by the devil. Obviously, if you're listening, God has ordained this. 
So that, that's the opportunity to, rem, to remove those blinders. Turn away from the broad way that leads to destruction and turn to that one singular name that every knee will bow to, Jesus Christ. See, I, I imagine, you know, as I, as I was thinking about this, you know, who's to blame? At judgment, God's not going to say, who do you blame? Instead, it might sound something more like, who do you claim? It's free. So I, I don't know where you're at in your life, but I want to pray for everybody. And particularly in the midst of everything that's going on, if you are struggling and you have never answered that call to God, I want to ask you if after I pray, if at some point, somehow you reach out to me or, or a pastor, because I know not everybody's here, some people are online, but that is something that has to be settled. Because every single person is responsible for their own sin, and sin leads to death. There is no other place to place the blame. No other person to put that blame on. Let, let me pray for you right now. Lord, we thank you for your message. We thank you that your word is powerful, dividing the soul. It goes out and doesn't come back void. Lord, I don't know how your word is working today in the lives of those who are listening. But Lord, if someone today is crying out for you, Lord, we rejoice. And the angels rejoice. Lord, give them encouragement. Give them the ability to accept what it is that they have done, the separation that comes from the death of sin. And Lord, as they cry out to you, may they be rejoicing. And for those that are here today that believe, just as the songs that we sang, that they believe in God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit, Lord, pray to you keep us mindful that as we look around and, and there's all this noise, Lord, that you would give us the wisdom to sit back and remember the only thing matters is sin kills the soul. And we're about to be that work of saving, to be the watchmen that warn of the coming judgment. And in that regard, Lord, let us be encouraged by the same words you gave Ezekiel, that regardless of the fact that they will be dismayed, they will have crazy looks on their face, they won't want to listen, do it anyway. Lord, give us that strong and courageous spirit. Give us the wisdom and discernment to know how to do that amongst our society. And Lord, let us not be focused on anything of any sort of label except that we seek righteousness and we combat unrighteousness. Lord, show us how to do that here as a body of believers. Show us how to do that around the world as we take the gospel message to others in whatever form that may take. And let us be found faithful, not as some that stray from the, the word that turn to man's religion. Let us not stray from your doctrine and those things that matter let us proclaim the name of Christ as you have said to do so. Lord, let us rejoice as souls are added to your kingdom and let us be a part of that glorious work. Amen. I believe I want to leave you with this. You know, I asked who's to blame and I asked what it is that we could be doing. And in my Bible, this, there's some sections that are, t are labeled, and this is called the love imperative. And this comes from 1 John, but as you think about what it is that we could be doing or what it is that we should be doing, I want to leave you with some sort of tool or resource that says, okay, there's a starting point. It says, by this, children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that you should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he do that? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. 
Do not be surprised, brother, when they hate you, when the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers, brethren, and he who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with just word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know this, will know by this that we are of the truth, and we will assure our hearts before him, and whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Don't grow weary in doing good work. Even when the heart betrays you, God is stronger. God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. That should be a highlight. Part of the testimony it should be on your resume. This is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. I'll leave you with these last few words and let them resound as they may. Uh, things that I've, I've picked up on and I've tried to think about wisdom that I could pass on to other people. And sometimes the, the window of opportunity is very small. Sometimes it's to believers and sometimes it's not. But I think you'll see the, uh, the importance here and, and hopefully that these aren't all that uncommon to you. But as you move forward, more scripture, less social media. More Bible, less books. More prayer, less posts. Truth over tradition. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word today and the, the worship that we are allowed to participate in. Lord, we pray that your name was magnified and that you received glory. Lord, may that be the case as we walk out these doors in our lives, as we go into our community. May you continue to receive the glory. May we continue to praise your name. And may that draw people to you that have questions that as they've become aware of their blindness and they cast that blindness aside, Lord, and cry out to you. May that be a result of the work that you've asked us to do and, and Lord, we pray that you give us the opportunity to participate in that and that we may rejoice in it. Lord, bless the uh, work of the church and the upcoming Vacation Bible School. Lord, we pray that you prepare hearts and minds that the soil has been cultivated and Lord, may us be found faithful in the endeavor that we are doing exactly what you told Ezekiel to do crying out and warning of the coming judgment. May we be found your faithful watchmen. In your son's name we pray and ask these things. Amen.